Hello, goblins and ghouls, and welcome to my Haunted Life podcast. I'm your host, Angela Hartshorn, and today I'm telling you the story of two haunted houses and one very doomed family. Good morning, goblins and ghouls. I hope you are having a wonderful day, or at least a manageable one. I missed you guys so much last week. I went down with a horrible <laughs> headache, cold mess. It was awful. Long story short, it was awful. And then having to push through for Albuquerque Oddities and Curiosities Expo this weekend. I did it. Um, it was rough, <laughs> but I did it. That being said, because I wasn't feeling the greatest, we didn't get a whole lot of ghost hunting in, but we got, I, I got at least one good story from Albuquerque for you. I'm hoping to do a little bit more research on a couple of others and see if I can... Uh, Fill them out a little bit. So. We we ended up staying in a very... I don't know. It, it was a very lovely hotel. Uh, the Hotel Park Central... Right? I keep getting the name all confused. Um, but it was lovely. Strange. Because it used to be a hospital. It was a hospital. And then it was a mental institution. And now it's a hotel. So like two of the most haunted types of buildings you can get. It, it had a vibe. It was interesting. So they'll come up here sooner than I would probably like it to be. Uh, a little bit of housekeeping. I very much appreciate the past COVID me doing a lot of research for the Pacific Northwest stories. Now, the writing and editing hasn't been the greatest and sometimes I haven't caught it until I'm actually recording and reading the script, as you have probably noticed. I am hoping I have gone through this one enough so there isn't a problem, but we'll see now that I have head cold that I'm getting over and now apparently food poisoning. You guys, I just need to not do anything for a while. It's ridiculous. Don't forget to hop over to the YouTube page to check out all the fun things happening there, like my mini little ghost show about my investigation of the witch's castle. I'm going to try to do more of these. I had too much fun with it. This week I have a ton of pictures, but not as much video, um, which I was really disappointed about. I have some. Uh, I, I'll be able to make one of the, the little short ones, but for the most part, it's, it's photos. But in the photos is an adorable Halloween scavenger hunt, so I'll have those up on the website, or on the Patreon, sorry. The website is up and going. It's just very simple. So everything's getting posted on Patreon. 
This week, we are moving out of Portland and up the coast to Astoria, Oregon, a sleepy little town directly on the Columbia River that has the cutest population of very loud sea lions. It's tucked up in a valley that leads right down to the waterfront where you can watch big freighter ships and little lead boats going up and down all day. As we drove into town, we hit a pretty crazy rainstorm that apparently flooded out a lot of places in town, but otherwise it was very calm. Like off and on sunny and then, you know, some fog. It's kind of hard to believe that we were in the m right in the mist. Mist. Ah, fog. Ah. Anyways, we were right in the middle of the graveyard of the Pacific. According to the Columbia River Maritime Museum, since 1792, approximately 2,000 vessels, including over 200 large ships, have sunk at the Columbia River Bar. More than 700 people have lost their lives to the sea. Mariners agree that the combination of high seas, a mighty river, land shallow, and shifting sandbars make the Columbia River Bar one of the most dangerous bar crossings in the world. Considering the stories from the museum, I'm glad that's, uh, that's the worst weather we had out there. I don't know if I want to see it at its worst. That's kind of the backdrop for this week's stories. On this week's episode, we are examining the glorious haunted houses of the Favell family. One haunted by spirits and the other haunted by the last generation of the family one member of which became known as Hatchet Harry. This is the story of family secrets and a mystery that endeared for decades. There's a lot of twists and turns in this one. So let's get into it, shall we? Grab yourself a cup of tea, make sure the doors are locked and the hatchet is close by. I have a story to tell you. The Favelle House was one of my favorite places to visit on our Astoria trip. This place looks like a dollhouse, but for like real people, it's absolutely exquisite. The Queen Anne architectural style can be seen in the house's steeply pitched roof, patterned shingles, and cutaway bay windows. It also has this gorgeous fairy tale-like tower and a wraparound porch. It's been listed on the National Registry of Historic Places since 1951. And it is so hard seeing the house now to believe that at one point it was in danger of becoming a parking lot. One of my favorite things walking up to the house is that the ground cover around the lawn is rosemary. It's freaking rosemary, you guys. It's 
everywhere. Like many of the great houses we talk about in Portland, the Favelle House has an absolutely beautiful garden. Shortly after the house was built, the family gardener, Louis Schultz, began planting delicate roses and many varieties of bulbs and shrubs, as well as trees. Oh, and the trees! If you really like trees, like I do, you will notice that there are some very unique species that don't match the local varieties. There are nine special trees planted around the grounds that Captain Favell brought back from his many voyages to places across the globe. There's a campered down elm, a giant sequoia redwood that is about to take out the entire block. It's awesome. Four rock or cork elms, a bay laurel, a pear tree, and a ginkgo tree, which were officially honored by the Oregon Heritage Tree Program at the statewide dedication ceremony held on the grounds in 2004. I feel like I'm focusing on the wonderful natural beauty around the house before getting into all the twists and turns the stories have. A little brevity before darkness, I guess. I feel like this was my palate cleanser after all the research. Which is kind of funny because now I have to read it all. But let's be honest, we're here for the darkness. So let's get into the history. A lot of this history comes directly from the Favelle House website. So the Favelle House Museum was the home of Captain George Favelle, one of Astoria's most influential citizens in the late 1800s. No one really knows anything about his background before coming to Oregon. We aren't even really sure where he was actually born. It's a toss-up between Virginia, New Jersey, or Ireland, depending on the story he told. I, I don't know, but that seems a little sus already. Captain Favell was a noted bar pilot on the Columbia River, which means he would go out in a smaller boat to help guide bigger ships down the dangerous Columbia. He has been described as fearless, reckless, and sometimes insane with the way he would plunge into any situation headfirst. He was able to establish a good reputation, which led to different business opportunities and investments, making him a prominent and wealthy businessman. So, of course, he needed a prominent and showy house. The house was designed by German-born architect Carl W. Leck and was completed in the spring of 1886 as the captain's retirement home. The captain lived there for seven years with his wife Mary, Mary Christina and their two grown daughters. Wow, 
Nellie and Katie. The couple's son, George Conrad, never lived in his parents' new residence as he was already married and living in a house of his own. And this is our second Favelle house that becomes very important to the story later on. Our original Favelle house is approximately 11,600 square feet and consists of two and a half stories, a single story rear kitchen, a four story tower, and a full basement. The interior woodwork around the doors, windows, and staircase are East Lake influenced in design. I don't know what that means, but it's important. The Douglas fir doors, moldings, and wainscoting wainscoting, were faux wood grain by a master craftsman to look like exotic hardwoods such as mahogany and burl rosewood. This amused my husband way too much because he, he got this immediately. The wood likely came from a mill in Portland or San Francisco and was shipped to Astoria by steamer. There are six fireplaces in the home and feature different imported tiles from around the world, elaborate hand-carved mantles, and a patterned metal firebox designed to burn coal. The 14-foot high ceilings on the first floor and the 12-foot high ceilings on the second floor are embellished with plaster medallions and plaster crown moldings. The house is very modern with wall-to-wall carpeting, gas lighting, indoor plumbing, and a central heating system. The first floor is comprised of the public rooms, such as the grand entrance hall, the formal parlor, the music room, the scene of music recitals by the Favelle Daughters, apparently. There's a library, a dining room, and also a conservatory. The butler's pantry, the kitchen, and the mudroom make up the housekeeping area. The second floor features a main bathroom, five bed chambers, and a small room used as a sewing room or storage room. The attic floor is a large unfinished area with two small plain bedrooms used by the Favelle's domestic help. The tower gave the captain a broad view of Astoria and the Columbia River to keep an eye on local ship traffic. The basement of the house originally had a dirt floor and contained a large wood-burning furnace. The house remained in the family until 1934 when George and Mary's great-granddaughter, Patricia Jean Favelle, gave the property to the city as a memorial to her family. In 1936, there was talk of tearing the house down and establishing an outdoor community park on the property. However, the city had financial difficulties and decided to return the property to Patricia. 
That same year, the residence and grounds were deeded to the Clatsop County with the understanding that both would be kept in good repair and used for public purposes. From 1937 through World War II, the public health department, the Red Cross, and the local welfare commission all had offices in the house. In 1951, there was once again the talk of tearing the house down, this time to make way for a parking lot for the county courthouse, which is like right across the street, I believe, if I remember correctly. Concerned citizens organized to save the home and the Favelle House was made into a local history museum managed by the Clatsop County Historical Society while still under the ownership of the county. Eventually, the county took full ownership. Also, just, just a little small tidbit. If you're familiar with Astoria, Oregon, one of its Big, like, uh, uh, I can't think of the word. Oh, God. Um, one of the big reasons people know Astoria, Oregon, is because it's where the Goonies was filmed. The Favelle House is seen in the beginning of the Goonies because it's where the dad worked. It was like the museum he worked at. So they used the front of the Favelle House. So, so just random movie trivia because you know I like to throw that in there whenever I can. Finding ghost stories on the first Favelle house are actually pretty hard online. Most are people not realizing that there were actually two Favelle houses and contributing all the stories to the first house. The second house was built by Captain George's son, George Conrad for him and his family. Luckily, now, when we were in the carriage house, which is where your tour of the Favelle house starts, it's like it's a little gift shop and there's a nice lady at a desk to get you the tickets and everything. I found a book entitled Haunted Astoria by Jefferson Davis. He too wrote that he had been having issues finding stories online, but had a couple from interviewing staff. So I'm going to go ahead and read those to you now. The Music Room. Sharon worked as a volunteer at the house for five years. As a docent, she used to sit in the main hallway near the entrance. Opposite her chair was the music room. Although there was a formal parlor, Katie and Nellie spent most of their mornings in the music room, waiting to receive visitors and practicing their music. In the evenings, they entertained visitors with song and sound. Like most of the rooms, the furnishings were a mix of original favelle furniture and period pieces from elsewhere. When Sharon was there, she 
noticed a large music box in the music room. On stormy days, as it got dark, Sharon sometimes heard the music box playing on its own. The first time this happened, she investigated and found that the doorway was roped off and the room was empty. The music box had a large heavy lid which had to be lifted to start the mechanism. Her memory was pretty good and she did not remember hearing or seeing anyone enter the music room, lift the lid, start the music box, lower the lid, and creep out. Sharon spoke with some of the other volunteers and they told her they had heard it play sometimes, usually before a storm. When I visited in July 2006, I asked after the music box. The volunteers recalled that there had been one in the music room. However, no one seemed sure where it went. I spoke with another volunteer, Joan, who shared her experience. In 2005, her son, his wife, and their children came to Astoria for a visit. She took them on a tour of the house, finishing in time to close up the house for the day. They paused for a while outside before going home. Her son and husband took several pictures of the house from different angles, each with their own digital cameras. When they got home, her son downloaded his pictures to his computer. They noticed something strange in one of the music room windows. They saw fuzzy images of what they believed to be three women standing there looking outside. Her husband downloaded his pictures next. He also had pictures of the three women standing in the window. On close examination, the women were wearing old-fashioned clothing. Were Favelle women looking out the window wishing them a good evening? She offered to show me the pictures on my next visit. Unfortunately, we never reconnected and I missed seeing the ghostly ladies. Captain Favell's bedroom. Most of the furniture in Captain Favell's room is original. His bed had a, was a recent acquisition purchased at an auction a year or two ago. One of the people who bid on the bed told me that there was a bullet hole in the headboard. When I visited, I tried checking for it, but got yelled at, so I do not re recommend checking yourself. If there is one, I am sure there is a story to tell. Three or four years ago, a woman came to tour the house near closing time. She identified herself as a psychic and requested permission to walk the house after they closed. The docent told her it was fine and after closing, let her walk around the building. The woman approached Captain Favell's bedroom and walked inside. She paused just inside the threshold and turned to the docent saying, this, this is the center of all evil in this house. A few years later, as part of a new Halloween newspaper article, the same docent stayed overnight in the house with a reporter from the Daily Astorian.
Astorian. There we go, yeah. He made sure to sleep on the evil spot, and unfortunately for this book, nothing bad happened. One of the volunteers told Martha a story which took place before 2002 when the gift shop opened in the carriage house. In those days, the docent sat at the desk in the house at the foot of the grand staircase selling tickets. A man that the docent described as pretty normal came tearing down the staircase, white as a sheet, very upset. The man said he had saw Captain Favell in his bedroom. He saw Captain Favell's figure standing there for a few seconds looking at him. Then Captain Favell crumbled to the floor and disappeared. It seems like he fell through or sank through the floor. I spoke with a woman who worked as a housekeeper at the Favell house, who I will call Mary. On her first day, Mary cleaned the captain's bedroom. Mary was not alone in the building, but as far as she knew, she was the only one on the second floor. She was vacuuming the carpet when the machine suddenly cut out. When the when she checked the vacuum she and plugged in, she found that the electrical cord was unplugged. She plugged it back in and went on cleaning. A minute or so later, it was unplugged again. Mary figured that some of the other volunteers were playing tricks on her and yelled for them to stop. A quick check of the second floor showed Mary that she was alone. Mary told me that something similar happened a few more times. She felt that Captain Favell was just be trying to be playful. In addition to Captain Favell dying in his room, Katie died there in August 1910 of what they called a nation due to neuritis? Some people suggest that her lingering illness was a multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis. Mary Favell died in her bedroom after a long illness in 1928. Nellie did not die at the home, but had a heart attack while visiting relatives in New York State in 1933. Another testament to the rough and ready days of Astoria's past were the security doors the Favell women installed on the second floor after the captain's death. The caretakers keep these doors open now. They appear to be decorative, but are functional. They are wooden and are heavily decorated, but go from floor to ceiling. There were brackets where the board could be dropped to barricade the door shut if an intruder managed to pick the locking bolt from the outside. Some friends remember Nellie locking the doors most nights for fear of robbers. The Attic and Tower Lori worked at the Chamber of Commerce for several years and received a VIP tour of the Favell House. 
In the days when the house was built, servants usually lived in small nooks in the attic. The attic spaces were drafty and drab then and today. Most of the favel servants lived locally and worked as day servants. Captain Favell went up there to climb to the top of the tower to survey the Columbia River and his domain. The stairs are about six feet wide as they began to climb up the tower. They narrow to about 18 inches as they end at the observation window. Favell climbed these stairs so often, his hand polished the wood hand railing lining the stairs. Laurie tried following his footsteps. Laurie made it most of the way up these stairs before she turned back. She admits that she had a bit of claustrophobia, but also felt something telling her not to go up the stairs. She had no explanation of what was up there, but was curious about what other people felt. I climbed the stairs myself and did not notice anything strange. However, the way the stairs narrow and the cobwebs would bother anyone with a touch of claustrophobia. So thank you to Mr. Davis for finding those for us and publishing them. The tour through the Favel house is self-guided, but there was a docent there when we went. I had to ask the docent if there were any hauntings. I swear I did it discreetly away from other tourists. I had noticed a Rider Waite Coleman tarot deck laid out on the table in the parlor and a crystal ball in another. So I figured they might be open to talking about the paranormal. She just told me that there was some of the regular stuff but the house was very quiet. She wouldn't elaborate. I tried to ask her about Harry, who is where the story gets, well, for lack of a better word, crazy. She quickly told me that that was a separate house and this Favel house was not associated with what happened there. She quickly went back to her station and found a piece of paper for Halloween, the Favel house was having a scavenger hunt around the house. They had hidden Victorian spiritual, spiritualism items around the house. Some were real, some were fake, like some old-timey ghost photography and a stereoscopic picture of Colossal Claude, who is getting his own podcast coming up, I think, next week. There were things like Victorian copies of Frankenstein and Dracula, that sort of thing. It was adorable. I completely geeked out. I told her I had noticed the tarot cards and the crystal ball, which were items on the list, and I really wanted to ask her about them. I didn't want to bug her anymore. She chuckled. She had noticed that the hubs was busy taking pictures of doorknobs and hinges, so she pulled out this big binder of stuff and said I might enjoy this. It was different family trees and photos and news clippings that, as a history nerd, I loved. 
and I went through it until Jordan was done. I gave her back the binder and she gestured me to a poster on the wall of the Favell family tree. She explained that the Harry I was asking about was the great grandson of Captain George and never actually lived in that house. She then told me the story as she remembered it. She said she wasn't living in a story at the time. She only learned of it because of people coming to the house asking about it, like me. She then gave me the address to the other Favel house. It's a private residence, so we couldn't go in, but I could at least go by and see it. So, after this quick break, I'm going to take you to the second Favel house and tell you the story of Hatchet Harry. Before we start this one, I wanted to give a trigger warning. There is some animal abuse and some untreated mental illness in this one, as well as some random violence. So, heads up. The second favel house was built in 1901 by the second Captain George Conrad Favel son of the guy that built the first house. I think one of the reasons there is so much confuses, confusion before, between the houses and the family members is because all the men seem to reuse the same names over and over. There are the father and son Captain George and then father and son Harry's. It, it's a lot. The younger Bell built the house several blocks away from his parents and spinster sisters. Favell had a son named Harry M. Favell, grandson to the first captain. Harry inherited the second house when his father passed away. He married twice. His first wife and daughters settled in California. He then wed again to a school teacher named Florence Sherman. The couple had a son and daughter, Harry Sherman Favell and Mary Louise, before Harry M. Favell passed away in 1951. Mary Louise and Henry S. never wed or had children. Our story revolves around this Harry, who was the great-great-grandson of Captain George Favell and the second house. I realize I didn't have enough grades earlier. So great-great-grandson. I found this wonderful article on the Daily Historian about by Chelsea Growl, Growl that referred to Harry Sherman as the little town's Boo Radley, a reference to To Kill a Mockingbird, which is a pretty perfect description when you look at it. The last generation of Favelles had become recluses. The only ones remaining in the house were Florence, the mother, 
Mary Louise, the sister, and Harry Sherman. And they didn't have the best reputation. In 1947, when Harry Sherman was only 20, neighbor Fred Fulton heard screams for help coming from the Favelle house that he believed were from Florence. Fearing something was wrong, Fulton broke into the house through an upstairs hall door to try to rescue her. He encountered Harry standing there in the hallway with a hatchet. Harry Sherman then attacked the banister on the stairs and then his neighbor with the hatchet, cutting the neighbor's arm. According to Harry, however, it was Fulton who had attacked him and Fulton was actually cut when he was trying to break into a bedroom to which Harry had fled. Harry was charged with assault with a deadly weapon, but at his trial, his mother Florence insisted she had been in no danger and her son had locked her in her room simply so she could concentrate on finding a key that was important to him. I don't know if that totally makes the story any better, but okay. Both Florence and Mary Louise claimed that Fulton was drunk and Harry claimed he had been acting in self-defense because he was frightened of the neighbor. The charges against Harry were dropped. Things just got stranger with Harry. Neighbors claimed that Harry once stole a dog from them because they, he, because he said they weren't walking it enough. They were too scared of him to go to his house and take their dog back. The Favelles had many dogs because Harry often took in strays. He would be seen walking up to six dogs at a time. Astoria Fire and Rescue Lieutenant Bob Johnson said his family, I'm sorry, said his father was a doctor who sometimes made house calls to the home when Harry was a teenager. He had been told Harry had chopped the banister to bits with a hatchet in a teenage rage. Retired Assistant Police Chief Alan Oja said that he had been called to the home in the 1980s on a couple of occasions. Oja had even arrested Mary Louise when she refused to leave a social meeting in the Dr. Harvey house. Not sure who Dr. Harvey is, but you know, the fam the family the family's doing stuff. In 1983, 36 years after the initial incident with the hatchet, Harry Sherman and his sister Mary Louise were still living in the home with their mother Florence. Hatchet Harry was walking two dogs when a car belonging to 20-year-old Alec Jofison sped past. He Harry used the dog's chain to hit the car as it went by. 
The driver of the car was furious and chased Harry down an alley on foot, where Harry then stabbed him. Police and the district attorney at the time, Steve Gertula, stood on the front porch of the Favelle home while the Favelles talked to the city manager on the phone. They never let police in, but a few days later, Harry turned himself in to the police. He pled not guilty, was put on trial for attempted murder and first-degree assault. Harry was once again charged with assault and could have been sentenced to 20 years in prison, but was given probation instead. Meanwhile, he appealed and appealed and appealed. In August 1990, his appeals were exhausted. It would mean jail time for the reclusive man now in his 60s. Mary Louise canceled the final restitution check and the family just up and disappeared. Just abandoning the home, just gone in the middle of the night situation. While it is believed that they didn't return home to the property, neighbors claim the Favelles came back to the house several times over the years, always calling the neighbors first to ask if there were any police around. It wasn't until October of 1990 that the Favelles were found in Pennsylvania, where Harry was arrested for stealing towels from a hotel hell of a way to get caught. He was going to be extradited, but he and his family fled from law enforcement again. In 1991, the FBI became alerted to the Favelle's temporary residence in Massachusetts by a hotel maintenance man. Favelle was put into the Clatsop County Jail in 1992 to await hearing. To await a hearing. There we go. He spent a year in jail there before being released. He disappeared again and went back to Massachusetts. Harry's mother, Florence, died in 1994, shortly after he was released from the county jail. Hatchet Harry Sherman died in 2010. When Harry died, his body sat in the morgue for nine months because Mary Louise would not pay for a burial. He was eventually buried in the, in a Portland, sorry, he was buried in Portland through an engineer burial fund. Some claim that the Favelle house has sat abandoned for so many years has become haunted. Shortly after Harry's death in 2010, a black banner of mourning was spotted draped over the balcony of the house. No one knows who hung the banner because no one has seen Mary Louise. She she left with everybody. And that was it. After years 
of the derelict house sitting empty and falling into decay, the county was finally able to go in and put a tarp on the roof and do some minor work to have to try to salvage the property for anyone who might wish to purchase it in the future. It was the first time outsiders had been in the house since it was abandoned in 1990. Inside, they found that the reclusive Favell family had been hoarding items for the past 100 years. They found 100-year-old newspapers, magazines, and other items in stacks against the wall and spread over the floor of the entire house, including the basement, first floor, second floor, and attic. Among the stacks of garbage and clutter inside the mansion were items of monetary and historic value, antique bikes, solid wood-carved pillars, and items of sentimental value, like a Valentine's Day card to Florence, signed by Mary Louise from 1970, and even hand-painted art by Florence herself. A 12-inch knife by the stairwell in the basement was found. A 1950s-era women's swimsuit hanging at, like, hanging up too dry in an old pink bathroom. Clothes were still hung in the closet. There was unopened mail stacked about, including a notice from the IRS for unpaid taxes from 1979. There was toilet paper and still all wrapped up in plastic and stored in brown paper bags as if it had just come from the market. Several sealed packages of adult diapers were strewn about the bedroom. Most presumed this probably belonged to Florence since she was 90 when the family left town. The kitchen, the room at which the city gained access through a back door, had signs of recent break-ins and drug paraphernalia on the on the stove. That, to me, I, I'm going to assume somebody probably did that later because it sat there abandoned for so long. This is one of those, like, trigger warning parts because it gets me every time. The refrigerator held oozing and dripping items that may have been food once upon a time, as it was labeled. The bottom shelf had what looked like a dead dog head. There were also other items wrapped in what appeared to be duct tape. In the basement, plastic jugs of bleach were shaped into two pillars of artwork spiraling the empty bottles by the neck from the floor to the ceiling in two corners. The laundry room still had towels hanging up. A boiler was still putting off fumes. Sat in the middle of the solitary, sat in the middle, 
with a solitary chair facing it nearby. A canning room with mason jars was also discovered downstairs. In the attic, holes in the roof let the daylight in. A chest sat in the corner, empty with the exception of a couple of hankies and a receipt for $2.50. More books, newspapers, and magazines, including a 1958 advertisement for a Chevrolet and a 1960s Playboy, were littered across the floor. A sewing room in the attic held a bed along with a tiny closet, thread, needles, and a case for a serger sewing machine. So, kind of random and a lot. It was a mystery what happened to Mary Louise for almost two decades. In 2012, she had stopped cashing checks for the rental property that the family owned in town. She apparently was no longer working with the lawyer she had been for a while, which I'm assuming was a family lawyer, but she was just like, no, I'm done with you. Honestly, I was pretty convinced her brother had killed her until I found out she refused to pay for his body when he died. So we know she at least outlasted him. Astoria decided it was time to do something about the Fabel's crumbling commercial properties in 2018. Apparently, they still owned a few different properties in town. Anonymous tips helped officials discover that Mary was, in fact, still alive. They issued her fines totaling $5.6 million in hopes of getting her attention. This seems to have worked because she was found shortly thereafter. She had been living in a nursing home outside of Portland, and then her health began to fail. She, di- she died shortly after being found of natural causes on October 20th, 2018. She was 93 years old. She was buried in the Favell family plot at Ocean View Cemetery in Warrington. Life in a story was great, Mary once said, unless you were a Favell. Now, Mary's history is really interesting because I know a lot of the history... It sounds, I know I'm mostly focused on Harry for this, but apparently Mary had some, some life, especially when she was younger in her like early twenties. It sounded like she had been doing something with music in New York and had a job and for some reason, came back to this weird family situation. I don't know. I, I I want someone to write a book just on Mary. So, but it, the whole thing was just so strange. I 
when I first started doing this research, a lot of the mystery websites and ghost websites hadn't updated that Mary had been discovered. It was always this big mystery. What happened to Mary? So when I found that she was discovered, it was just amazing to me. And I know this half of the story has been more mystery than paranormal in it. I would love to know what she was doing. But I bet that house is haunted. When we went by, it looked like they were starting to renovate the outside of it. It's kind of weird. Like everything was taped up and like painted light yellow even over like the windows. I have pictures. Don't worry. Um, but we all know that renovations always stir up activity. And with the history in the house, I bet we will hear stories sooner than later about weird things happening in the house. It's like a haunted house in the making. So, everybody keep an ear out for this one. Because we're, we're going to get stories. It, it's coming. My Haunted Life podcast is written, researched, produced, edited, and hosted by me, Angela Hartshorn. All of my sources are in the show notes and on the website, myhauntedlifepodcast.com. Make sure to subscribe on the pod to the podcast. I'm doing great today. Uh, so you don't miss an episode. If you are interested in more pictures, videos, and info for this week's episode, please go check out the Patreon page. And while you're there, if you like what you hear and want to support the show, please subscribe to the Patreon page. You can also, you know, support the show for as little as $2 a month. Most of the documents I don't have, like, firewalled like that, but some are. If you have information about today's episode, like ghost stories about the second Favel house, or just, you know, a ghost story of your own to share, email me at myhauntedlifepodcast at gmail.com, or write me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and now YouTube. And of course, all of those are at my haunted life podcast. And I just got TikTok. No, I screwed that up. I just got Twitter up and going again. And I think that's my haunted life pod because I ran out of room. Just to like follow all the weird discovery plus paranormal show drama right now. Um, so yeah, make sure you like and follow and comment all of those. And make sure to tell your friends and family about it word goes a long way music is by ghost stories incorporated and that's it for this show i'll see you all next week on my haunted life podcast and until then stay spooky <laughs>